Speech Pathology Australia acknowledged the traditional custodians of the lands, seas and waters throughout Australia and pay respect to Elders past, present and future. We recognise that the health and social and emotional well-being of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are grounded in continued connection to culture, country, language and community and acknowledge that sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week we showcase a conversation with inspiring and influential people who are advancing practice in one of the many and varied areas of speech pathology. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi and welcome to this week's Speak Up Conversation. I'm Lauren Fletcher. I'm a senior speech pathologist in neurorehabilitation at the Epworth Hospital in Melbourne. I've long had a particular interest in the field of aphasia rehabilitation and have the pleasure of sitting on the committees for Aphasia Victoria as well as the Speech Pathologists in Adult Rehabilitation Interest Group. And today I have the great pleasure of hosting this week's Speak Up Conversation, talking all things aphasia with the recipient of this year's Elizabeth Usher Memorial Award. Elizabeth Usher was known as the mother of speech therapy in Queensland and was also prominent in establishing the speech pathology profession nationally in Australia. She is remembered as being determined, persistent, and a person of great charm who devoted herself to the establishment of speech pathology university training in the 1960s after being incredibly concerned about the shortage of speech pathologists in Queensland. Elizabeth sadly passed away in 1996. However, her legacy lives on through the Elizabeth Usher Memorial Award Lecture, which is delivered each year at the Speech Pathology Australia National Conference by a leading speech pathologist. This year, the Elizabeth Usher Memorial Award Lecture will be presented by Professor Miranda Rose. Miranda is a speech pathologist with a strong background in neuropsychology and counselling and has many years of leadership experience in research in the field of aphasia. Miranda is well known as the director of the NHMRC funded Centre of Research Excellence in Aphasia Recovery and Rehabilitation, or the Aphasia CRE, at La Trobe University and is a beyond worthy recipient of the Elizabeth Usher Memorial Award. So in my mind, there's nothing better than chatting about aphasia research and rehabilitation, and there's absolutely no better person to talk to. So thank you so much for chatting with me today, Miranda. Uh, it's absolutely my pleasure, Lauren. Excellent. So now before we get to talking more about the aphasia CRE, which of course you're so well known for, can you tell us a little bit about what came before that for you? So in particular, what really led you to be passionate about improving the experience for those living with aphasia? Yes, I'd love to do that. And it takes it takes the um, story back a ways because we're talking 40 years ago, which is when I graduated um, from my Bachelor of Speech Pathology. And at that time, uh, as a new graduate, I went to work in a town of about 8,000 people in, in the state of Victoria uh, in a small rural hospital. And I was the sole speech pathologist uh, at, that, at that hospital. And one of my first patients was a woman with quite significant non-fluent aphasia. And of course, I interacted with her in the clinic, but being in a small town, I also had that great benefit of uh, interacting with her in the local shops and I'd run into her in the park and at, you know, community events and so on. 
And that gave me a really first-hand insight into how her communication disability disrupted her life and her sense of self. And really that had an incredibly lasting impact on me. So unfortunately at the time, my therapeutic tools were really confined to sort of language intervention. That's what I graduated thinking that I was going to do. Um, But I could see that the impacts of her aphasia was so much broader than language and that I wasn't really able to address the full extent of her communication and life challenges. And that experience then motivated me to enrol in postgraduate study and to keep expanding on my practice. And I suppose the other sort of main thread to the history of, you know, how I find myself having this chat with you today is that I've always been interested in psychological well-being and and its impacts on communication and speech pathology management. And so very early in my career, I did some additional training and counselling to support that interest, really. So as my clinical work continued in the acute and rehab settings, um, I just got more and more motivated to find better ways of helping people with aphasia and their family members communicate better and have a better quality of life. So 40 years later, here I am, still, a, would say, a passionate explorer in the field. Yeah, that's a, that's a great story, actually. And it's, I think it's so nice to hear that that very early new grad experience is really what's led you down this path that's perhaps not where you first saw yourself. Um, no, and those, those seeds, that um, those sensitising events, you know, those important moments that happen early in our career, um, you know, they do resonate mostly throughout our career. And yeah. I think many people listening to this, this podcast can perhaps remember the first clients, patients that they worked with uh, and what they learned from that and what, what that those clients stimulated in them to keep exploring and developing. Yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, and no, I, really, I really hold that, um, that the work with that woman very dear, actually. She, she uh, has really set up a lifelong journey for me. Yeah, how fantastic. And that it's that um, not just what happens in the clinic, in the hospital, but that whole broader life experience that kind of brought you to this. Yeah. And we're all the more grateful for it as well. <laughs> so perhaps where you are now then, can you tell us a bit more about this fantastic uh, centre that, that you've helped establish? So the Aphasia CRE, what are mm-hmm. the main aims um, and sort of what, what made you set that up? Yeah, sure. So look, the Aphasia CRE has some very broad aims um, and they're, they're quite um, you know, large in terms of how we've worded them. But basically the aim is to transform lives, of the lives of people living with aphasia and their families um, through the research we do that we hope leads to cost-effective and sustainable interdisciplinary rehab and community services. So there's a couple of sort of points in there that are really important. First of all, first, first of all about transformation, not doing what we've done before, but looking for Uh, new ways of approaching um, the challenges, but also the fact that things have to be sustainable and interdisciplinary and in the long-term cost-effective in order to be uh, implemented in practice. Um, We're a group of 30 multidisciplinary investigators and that's just such a joy to be working broadly with um, other uh, disciplines. So uh, the disciplines in our group include medicine, nursing, physio, OT, uh, psych, neuropsych and speech pathology, as well as health economics and biostatistics. 
Uh, and that um, wonderful confluence of different educational backgrounds and frameworks that all those investigators brings really helps us do, um, you know, cutting edge work, I think. Um, we have about 40 higher degree students at the moment and well over a thousand community of practice members, which um, are not just in Australia, but international from, you know, more than 30 countries. So it's quite a, a big um, entity now. And um, yeah, I'm very proud of, of uh, what we've been able to get done in the last three years of funding. So as you mentioned at the outset, we're funded by the National Health Medical Research Council and the initial funding is a five-year grant to support capacity building in this aim that we have. So we, we still have to go out and find additional funds to run a lot of the projects that we run, um, but the money supports um, our training of, for example, higher degree students, postdoctoral fellows and, and some project assistance um, budget. And we've got five main programs of research operating in the CRE. So um, I find this kind of a helpful shorthand for people to understand what we're trying to do. Yeah, so the five main programs, um, the first is the neurobiological and psychosocial predictors of recovery. So in that program, the investigators are really trying to get better prognostic information uh, so that we can more um, accurately and efficiently tailor interventions uh, to, to people, to individuals, taking account of all the huge amount of variability that yeah. exists in this population. And that means that we have to really understand both the neurobiological and the psychosocial elements um, of, of this, this group of people. We can't just rely on one to the exclusion of the other. So it's a very big, complex piece of work. And that program is led by Professor Dave Copland from the University of Queensland. Mm -hmm. The second program is um, treatment effectiveness across the continuum of care. And this is looking at various aphasia interventions, um, how to improve the efficacy and effectiveness of those. Um, so, for example, looking at elements of dose and scheduling, looking at different types of interventions and comparing them. Uh, that program is led by um, Associate Professor Erin Gadecki um, from um, Edith Cowan University. The third one is Technology for Healthcare Communication and Aphasia Rehabilitation. So this is, you know, <laughs> this fantastic era that we live in, uh, Lauren, where, you know, we've got for, for the first time, um, you know, wearables and um, portable devices that can so support the work that we want to do in aphasia rehab. Yeah, um, although there's way more, way more that we're yet to really unplug there. Uh, so uh, that program is led by Professor Leanne Tor from the University of Sydney. And the fourth one is Optimising Mental Health and Wellbeing, led by Professor Ian Kneebone, who's a Professor of Psychology at the University of Technology in uh, Sydney. And as the, as the name implies, it's really focusing in on um, elements of mental health and wellbeing in people with aphasia both from a therapeutic point of view as well as a preventative, um, you know, what we can do to make sure that people don't go down uh, mm. the pathway of depression and anxiety, which is so common in this population. Yeah. And then finally, we have an aphasia inclusion hub uh, currently led by uh, Dr. Robin O'Halloran. And that work um, focuses on trying to make sure that people with aphasia are actually in trials. So there's a huge amount of exclusion um, 
that's happened with this population. And if you yes. look at stroke research, the number one exclusion is people with aphasia. Yep. Um, and so a lot of our current stroke research evidence may not um, be very applicable to this population. And we really are trying to reverse that unnecessary exclusion but also looking at inclusive healthcare practice more broadly, uh, which, of course, is something that Robin has focused on for most of her career. So that's the that's the five programs. And we I think we have over 60 projects in operation at the moment, so almost wow. too many for me to be able yeah. to sort of write down. Um, uh, it's just it keeps growing every day. Yeah, I think yeah, you've done so a fantastic job of summarising such a huge piece of work <laughs> into you know, a few minutes. Yeah. Um, and, of course... We'll mention at the end, but people can, of course, go on to the Aphasia CRE website and have a look around at everything that, that's happening if they want to know a bit more. Absolutely, yep. Um, and it's great to hear, I think, you know, as you mentioned, the leads of the project and the, the diversity of um, clinical specialties and people across Australia and, you know, across across the world even mm. to, to bring all of that knowledge um, and information together to sort of work yeah, I mean, I think, you know, one of the great things about a CRE, the Centre of Research Excellence, is that you really are given permission to go big, you know, yeah. to go big. And so we have, from the point of view of national collaboration and multidisciplinary collaboration, but almost all the investigators have strong international collaboration as well. Yeah. And that's just so important in this field because actually compared to many um uh, disorders, aphasia, you know, there's about 140,000 people living in Australia with aphasia. Um, when we uh, pool uh, information that we might be able to derive from people in Australia with that that happens in the UK or the USA or many other countries where we have collaborations in India, in China, etc., we now start to get to numbers of participants that mean we can mount much larger studies that are um, uh, more robust, more powerful, and and have um, potential to really get to the uh, extreme heterogeneity that that's in this population. Yeah. So it's been a real joy, actually, as part of the CRE to um, engage with that international research community. Yeah, I've really, yeah. really enjoyed that. Yeah, fantastic. Um, I have so many more questions about that, but we'll, we'll move on in, in the interest of some of the other questions I wanted to get to. Um, one of the ideas that you've raised and you started to talk about a bit then is this idea of rethinking the way that we approach aphasia rehabilitation. So not just doing what we've always done. And as you mentioned, when you were starting out thinking, yes, I will do language intervention and that's what I'll do. Um, but you sort of started to talk then about using this biopsychosocial approach um, what what is it that you mean by that? What does that look like for aphasia rehabilitation? Yeah. So I think most listeners to this podcast, I hope that that phrase biopsychosocial is not new to them. You know, um, in, you know, it was 1977 that it was first described um, by uh, a researcher, George Engel, and he was writing in the field of um, really critiquing medicine at the time and critiquing the dualism of body and mind, the separation of body and mind, and at the time the dominance of a biomedical model, um, you know, that was sort of dictating how things were done in hospitals and healthcare. And so when we think about an alternative to that, the biopsychological or biopsychosocial approach, 
it recognises that the person's health condition, and in this case we can use the example of aphasia, is not just the result of damage to, say, the neural networks that underpin the language processing difficulties, that, that is the biological mechanism, but also reflects the individual's psychological state and their family, social, cultural and environmental circumstances. Um, and that these things interact in a complex system. And more than that, it also reflects the relationship between a clinician, so a speech pathologist in this case, and the person with aphasia, and that being paramount to understanding how we might move forward in any kind of therapeutic relationship. So I think, you know, most people that have graduated in the last decade um, would have learnt about the World Health Organization's International Classification of Functioning Disability and Health, or the ICF, during their course. And, of course, many people would have used that framework to conceptualise their interventions. So the ICF is completely consistent with what we're talking about here. Um, we can think about ways to take action at the biological or the impairment level, and an example of that in aphasia might be through neurostimulation or pharmacological approaches. Mm -hmm. um, we can think about taking action at the activity and participation level, such as through the employment of semantic feature analysis or script training at the environmental level, such as the use of communication partner training for healthcare mm -hmm. practitioners, or at the personal level through addressing an individual's communication confidence or their motivation. So I'm assuming and really hoping that the concept of the biopsychosocial approach is not new to people at all. What I think is a more significant issue and, and what I plan to talk about um, in the Elizabeth Usher address is that many clinicians really do struggle to implement the approach in practice. Yep. So many clinicians have learnt about it and probably deep down think it's the right thing to do, that it feels, you know, at a face validity kind of way, mm -hmm. feels like the right thing to do. But um, our work, including surveys of speech pathology um, practice and studies of patient experience, just keep reminding us that, in fact, um, it's, it's not universally employed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and in some circumstances, that challenge of applying the biopsychosocial framework relates to system-level barriers mm -hmm. that clinicians work within that they express limits their practice um, mm -hmm. and, you know, means that they have to uh, not pay attention to some elements of the individual's reality. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, though, it also relates mm, to a clinician's lack of education or preparation or confidence to work fully within some of those domains. Yeah. And it's really this that um, some of our work within the CRE is trying to tackle. So I'll, if it's all right with you, Lauren, I thought I might give an example yeah, of that'd be great. You know, that. that. Um, so, you know, if we take um, mental health, so, you know, we know with this population that rates of depression and anxiety in people with aphasia are about four times higher than their non-stroke community peers. And that these mood disorders definitely negatively impact engagement in even in while as an inpatient uh, in mm -hmm. rehabilitation settings, but of course, you know, obviously in the long term, yeah. um, and can lead to quite devastating uh, sequelae. You know, consequences mm -hmm. of 
suicidality and um, social dysfunction, family disruption and so on in the longer term. And we also know that there really are not enough psychologists to mm-hmm. address this issue in the healthcare system and that when psychologists are available, many of them just don't have the skills to adapt their interventions to people with communication disability, like people with aphasia. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes, so, you know, the medical teams think oh, it's not worth the referral because this person can't talk. Speak. How would they see a psychologist? Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's a it's a speaking intervention that's going to happen with the psychologist and mm-hmm. the person with aphasia can't do that. So let's not bother. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess some of the work in the CRE is trying to build the evidence both for this importance of a wider scope of practice in mental health um, and some of that might be through co-work, so, you know, direct working with psychologists in partnership where where we can find them, uh, both in terms of them helping us with our um, confidence and and, uh, um, appropriate barriers and, and boundaries around scope of practice, um, but for us to help the psychologist in terms of their um, being better able to communicate um, with with uh, clients with aphasia and adapt their interventions to uh, take the communication disability into account. Um, but also, you know, actually helping speech pathologists um, feel confident and sort of legal and ethically sound about working in the mental health space. Yeah. And, of course, you know, outside of the aphasia rehab um, world, there are many um, speech pathologists whose entire um, work is, is situated within mental health teams and they mm-hmm. might listen to this podcast and be a bit surprised that we're even having this conversation. Yeah. Um, but it's certainly not, excuse me, <coughs> it's certainly not... Um, you know, the common practice yet in, in aphasia rehab for speech pathologists to feel really confident about psychological practice. Yeah. Um, so a lot of what we're doing there is sort of gathering the evidence base about the need to do this um, and then effective ways to do this. And then ultimately, which um, many of our postdocs and, and PhDs are involved with at the moment, developing clinical resources that then enable clinicians to feel confident about implementing these new approaches and methods. I won't go today into the names of all the people that are behind this work, but suffice to say there are several PhD students and postdocs for whom their entire work is is focused within that topic. So that's just kind of one example of within the biopsychosocial framework, you know, I focused in here on mental health and wellbeing where our current practices um, are not fully engaged Mm. and yet we have, I believe, and and many people I work with, believe that we have the capacity to make a huge difference in in that domain and and radically impact the trajectory of people with aphasia and their families' lives. Um, So, yeah, I think that's in in the lecture what I tend to do is kind of raise some of these um, if you like low-hanging fruit in the way mm-hmm. we see it, yeah. that with, with enough um, training and support and resources, speech pathology practice could just shift that little bit in order to make a huge difference. Yeah, absolutely. And do you, just thinking about the current sort of world climate, particularly based in Melbourne where there's been so many lockdowns um, and a lot of social isolation over the past couple of years, have you noticed sort of increased interest in that mental health area over the last few years? 
Yeah. Do you mean from Do you mean from clinicians? Yeah, or from, from clinicians. Oh, I'm just thinking of yeah people with aphasia I work with who've a lot of them have commented the last few years have been so hard for them, just not not having people to talk to that then the speech therapy session is there. Um, yes. Their talking space, their mental health space. Yeah, I mean, I think there's no doubt that the incidence of um, challenge in mental health and probably actually clinical diagnoses um, will have risen in this population because it has risen in the general population um, radically mm. uh, during the two years of lockdown. And you know, I'm from Melbourne. You're from Melbourne. We 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 certainly had did did a bit lockdown in a harder way than some other um, listeners may yeah, other states yeah. may have experienced. So I think there's no doubt that the need has increased. Um, whether I couldn't comment really, Lauren, about whether clinicians feel more prepared to do that work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not the sort of uh, anecdotal feedback we get um, yeah. whenever we sort of have our, our staff present on this kind of thing. People are hungry for frameworks and methods and constructs around boundaries you know where can I work where can I not work in this isn't that someone else's job kind of stuff Mm. um so I'm not sure if that shifted and and we probably wouldn't know unless we did some more surveys and some more interviews you know post-covid yeah yeah interesting Mm. um now you've sort of covered a little bit of this when sort of thinking about a lot of the research that comes out you know talks about how sometimes that traditional aphasia rehab that you'd sort of mentioned when you first graduated this is what I want to do you know um, naming therapy that sort of thing often those therapy techniques they might effectiveness might not be maintained you know it might not be effective for everyone we work with what do you think the future is in terms of that sort of typical impairment-based therapy looking at that you know biological part of that framework Mm. What does the future oh, well, look, I'm here to tell you that it's absolutely got a place. <laughs> Don't let that go, guys. Just because we're talking about, you know, um, expanding our, our practices a little, it doesn't mean that we give up um, that which we know to have an impact. And um, people have language processing difficulties in aphasia and there are many interventions in our uh, repertoire that are efficacious and we should be using, in fact, probably... Um, there are some that are highly efficacious that are not um, you know, used all over the place and, and we need to look at that. So I'm here to absolutely tell you, yeah, it's, it, we need to do it. Um, if we take, you know, the sort of stock standard interventions for word retrieval, let's, let's start there at the sort mm-hmm. of everyday basics, uh, what a speech pathologist in aphasia rehab thinks about probably. Um, there's really strong evidence from a range of sources that if given in a sufficient dose, word retrieval therapies can improve word retrieval as well as impact functional communication. So I feel very confident about that. And an example more recently is our compare randomised control trial. So that was a big five-year trial, RCT, exploring uh, constraint-induced aphasia therapy and multimodality aphasia therapy against usual care. Uh, So that, that evidence is very clear. We changed people's word retrieval abilities and we also changed them at the 12-week follow-up point and we saw some impacts on functional communication and quality of life. But we do know that some outcomes will not be maintained in the long term Mm -hmm. unless there are maintenance doses uh, and or including self-management strategies. So this idea that 
from that if we think about a biomedical approach mm-hmm. the approach would be you go in and you fix the word retrieval difficulty and that's it yep the, the biopsychosocial approach would say you do something to um, enhance the language processing but this is a dynamic system and and it it doesn't get fixed it mm-hmm. needs attention probably for life yeah I mean I think most people think about you know, if you go and um, do a boot camp in something, mm-hmm. you know, where, whatever it is, um, weight training, belly dancing, salsa, whatever, you know, you can learn something very quickly, but you'll probably lose some of that skill or knowledge unless you keep practicing. Absolutely. And, and why, is, why do we think word retrieval is any different or mm-hmm. other elements of our language processing work we do in aphasia? Yeah. So what we need to do is is just pay a bit more attention to the maintenance of those um of of those gains um but also we need to really explore you know best sort of doses at the moment a lot of the doses we give in our language processing interventions have been determined from basic service history mm. you know so we 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 start a job we're told that you can see someone, you know, for 45 minutes a day for maybe three or maybe four days. Yeah. And you can do that for three or four weeks and that's the service. Yes. Um, but why? Why is that the service? <laughs> Absolutely. That, yeah. Well, it's the service because that's the service that's been there before you got there and was before the person before there and probably started in about 1960. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not necessarily based on any evidence about the effectiveness of that particular intervention. So what we're trying to do in the CRE is get really good, strong evidence around the, effic- the efficacy of these different interventions and their doses. Yeah. And no doubt, because aphasia is a complex phenomenon, there won't be a one-dose story it'll be for this person with this kind of challenge this kind of dose works best for that person with that kind of challenge that kind of dose works best you know yeah Um, and that would be such powerful knowledge to have you know soon after someone's presented with aphasia to know what does the pathway look like for rehab with you you know what sort of system should we be setting up and that would be so powerful for for clinicians to know Absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, um, I think, you know, we're probably around, you know, I think it's a 10 to 15 year trajectory before we're going to be able to have enough data that we can uh, examine that in in its complexity Mm -hmm. to be able to give those kinds of clinical um, parameters and rubrics and say, Uh, these kinds of therapies are best delivered with these kinds of doses in general. These kinds of therapies should be done like this. Uh, And then this is is a a maintenance um, activity that will work really well. So, yeah, I mean, you started this question part, Lauren, about sort of saying, should we give up? You know the sub the subtext. Was, should we <laughs> Certainly not. Should we give it up? But what what but should it's we kind do of it? it's kind of something that often people write, mm-hmm. raise when you start talking about the biopsychosocial approach. They sort of say, well, should we only should we only you know concentrate on well being, mm. or should we only concentrate on you know ordering a coffee? Um, you know, my view is no. If you can if you can get in and change a system fundamentally like language processing, and we can find really powerful ways to do that at the right doses, for example, 
then of course we we should do that. Mm. But we should not take our eye off the fact that that is happening within a human. Yes. And that human has a whole lot of factors that interact with that activity you're doing with them that will make this experience powerful or not. Yeah, fantastic. And I hope that, you know, you've answered my question and then also my next part of my question, which was sort of that future of aphasia rehabilitation. So that that sounds really, um, yeah, hopefully that in the future that might start to change the way that funding models and and rehab models are able to provide services. Yeah, look, I, I can see a shift that I think is going to happen, I hope, before I die. Touch wood, <laughs> you know, um, that um, that first of all, this biopsychosocial approach, which, you know, most people learn about at uni, becomes mm. just something that is implemented everywhere. Yeah. And then secondly, that we get these kind of right doses at the right time, right therapies at the right time for the right people, kind of, you know, the personalised prescription elements sorted. Mm. And one of the ways that um, technology might help us with that, I think, Lauren, going forward is that artificial intelligence, you know, it's kind of a scary concept to some of us and particularly people of my generation. Um, (laughs) But AI, I think, you know, in terms of our research and our data analytic techniques offers, um, you know, computational opportunity that just was not possible, Mm. you know, 25 years ago. Um, And when you've got a complex system like a human and then you've got a, a, a complex uh, a disorder like aphasia where there's such variability in which language processing elements are maintained and impaired, you need that computational um, excellence to be able to make sense of the noise that's in this data. Mm. So I'm thinking that going forward actually tech is going to have a much bigger part in our aphasia rehabilitation everyday sort of prescribing and that we'll we'll start to be able to plug in elements of an individual to an an algorithm and it will start to say to us, look, the likelihood of improvement from doing this with this kind of person is 10% but doing this is 60%. So then you have that personalised conversation with the individual or family you're working with Mm -hmm. around how should we play this risk? What do you want to do? Yeah. You know, and that's no different to, you know, when you and I go and see a medical practitioner, for example, and we want um, a discussion around perhaps a drug choice mm-hmm. and someone says to us, well, you know, if you take this, you've got the 60% chance of this side effect and this a 20% chance, you know, so what would you like to do? This is the kind of conversation I would love us to be able to have in, in aphasia rehab. Yeah, um, so it's you know personalizing on the back of data that's relevant to to individuals um, but you know this is not without also thinking about the broader things mm. such as you know someone's mood someone's um, socioeconomic uh, supports someone's yep. social supports because all of that is going to impact massively on any you know, numerical sort of rubric that that yeah. that um, that AI could perhaps you know throw up at us, but I'm I'm, I'm absolutely convinced that um, you know rehab outcomes should get better for this client group if we're able to harness research in the mm. way that I think we can over the next you know ten to fifteen years. Yeah, that's fantastic. So, and with that AI, and then also 
clinical skill of the, the speech pathologist there. Yeah, I absolutely agree with you that hopefully rehab outcomes will be um, much improved. Yeah, the- and I think that, you know, the last thing I want to say about that is just is that at the moment we've got this kind of very, um, there's an epoch of time where rehab happens. Mm -hmm. It happens, you know, in the first three to six months if we're lucky post-stroke, for example. You know, occasionally people get used to get get access to a community um, program Mm -hmm. uh, or rehab in the home program or some other support program um, under 65 through NDIS or other supports. Mm. Um, But, you know, humans, um, humans needs communicative needs continue and the system is able to change probably until one stops taking one's last breath yes so so you know I think we also need to look at how do we address people's needs in the longer term Mm. you know so you're three years post you need to give a speech at your daughter's wedding Mm -hmm. that's your goal then and it's a really important one can you not have some rehab about that? Yeah, and you're right in that there's no reason why people can't access some service. Like sometimes there are services they can access, but it's not the way it's always been done. Like you said, you do inpatient rehab, then outpatient rehab, then off you go. But, yeah, we need to look at how people can come back into the the system and the services when they need it. Yeah, and, you know, things like boot camps, intensives mm-hmm. that happen, you know, in the chronic phase, Um uh, and sort of maintenance doses that happen after those. There's a lot to think about there that really are system level adjustments. Mm. And what is it that we need to kickstart those system level adjustments? Is it a combination of evidence, consumer pressure, and clinicians' advocacy? Yes, I think it probably is. Yeah. Um, yeah. Fantastic. So I guess lastly. Um, we could be talking about this for hours if we let it, but but lastly, um, how how can speech pathologists or other people um, who are interested, if they're listening, where can they found, find out more about the CRE, the research, or about how they can support people living with aphasia? So we have a community of practice that I mentioned earlier, and people can jump on our aphasia CRE website. They can just Google aphasia CRE and they'll come to the Latrobe aphasia CRE homepage and then they'll get directed to the resources page where the community of practice lives. And they can sign up to that and automatically they'll get newsletters and, and information from us about what's happening in the CRE. But we also absolutely welcome direct approach. So any clinician who has a question about research or wants to get involved in some way, or if students are listening and they'd like to explore volunteer opportunities, just you know email us, we'll respond. Um, there's many, many ways to, to get involved. I certainly, you know, beyond the, the, the CRE, I would really encourage um, listeners to um, be involved in their state-based aphasia support networks and um, perhaps the National Australian Aphasia Association network. Um, there's so much to be done in terms of advocacy and support I think they're incredibly rewarding and an impactful activities. Um, most people I know that do that voluntary work just um, are so inspired by it. Um, and I really, you know, encourage people to, to look to those. Um, and at a very sort of grassroots level, I mean, even trying to do some more work establishing peer support groups in the community 
um, I would I would really encourage people to think about that. And we've developed some resources through our aphasia community website that that support the development of groups, and we've got more coming soon for peer groups. Um, so I think there's there's so many ways to get involved, um, either formally through research or less formally through you know advocacy and volunteering through the state and national aphasia organisations. Yeah, fantastic. I certainly agree with you there. Um, volunteering with the Aphasia Victoria group has been, um, like you said, such a rewarding and really inspiring opportunity to see the sorts of things that we can do at that local level to support people with aphasia. And I bet has impacted your clinical practice too. Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So certainly um, encourage people to get in touch with any of those um, organisations or groups that Miranda mentioned. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me today, Miranda. Like I said, you know, I could have chatted for um, hours if you'd have the time. Um, And of course, for those listening, that was just a little taste of what Miranda might talk about in her lecture at the upcoming Speech Pathology Australia conference, which will be held in Melbourne from the 22nd to the 25th of May. And registrations are now open via the Speech Pathology Australia website. So if today's conversation has piqued your interest, just jump online and register. It's going to be a fantastic event. Thank you so much for listening today and be sure to tune in again next Wednesday for another Speak Up conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast where all good podcasts are found and make sure you share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for tuning in 